This is the Huddle.com LifeCast. We're talking to inspired and insightful people who have faced life's greatest challenges and broken through. Welcome, everyone, to the Huddle.com LifeCast. I'm your host, Mark Stolo. I'm joined today uh, by Dr. Stephen Hayes. Dr. Hayes is a foundation professor of psychology at the University of Nevada, Reno, and is the author of 46 books, including Get Out of Your Mind and Into Your Life, which for a time was the best-selling self-help book in the United States. And his new book, A Liberated Mind, um, is a great book. Uh, piece of transformational literature I encourage everyone to read. Um, Dr. Hayes is an expert on the importance of acceptance, mindfulness, and values, and he is ranked among the most cited psychologists in the world. Dr. Hayes, welcome to the Huddle Lifecast. It's awesome to be here with you, Mark. Looking forward to it. So you've talked very candidly, both in A Liberated Mind and even in your TED Talk about your own experience with anxiety and panic disorder. And your TED Talk in particular is, is very visceral and vivid, uh, physical, in the way you describe that experience uh, one evening. Um, I won't ask you to relive the entire moment because I can only imagine the number of times you're asked to do that. But I think the big question for me was, what was the big takeaway in that moment for you? What was that transformative or cathartic experience for you that that led you down a different path of how you were relating to your anxious experience or to panic? Well, it, it was the experience of hitting bottom and not having any way forward, not having any way out. And then finding somewhere in that uh, experience a completely different deal, which is finding a way in. And you know, it's, it's, it's as if uh, you're uh, really, really hungry and, and there's, you're, you're in front of a table where it has this banquet laid out and you're on the floor like chewing on the legs saying, ah, oh, I'm so hungry, I'm so hungry. You know what I mean? And then, and then you sit up and say, holy beans, look at what's on this. You know, like there's these moments. So you, you use the word transformation, I think, and that you, you focus on that somewhat in the work that you do. You know, what is transformation? And I think it's that deal of seeing that there's an entirely different agenda. That it's, it's not that the means have changed or you learn new techniques. No, it's, it's an entirely different agenda. And I, you know, spent my life trying to unpack that and say, how could that happen? And trying to understand the mode of mind that produces it, the repertoires that we carry with us, the evolutionary reasons why this little part of us that's evolutionarily recent, by the way, it's only a few hundred thousand, maybe a couple million years old, and it's crashing into processes that are a thousand times older. And then, you know, so we're the species who can send rocket ships to the Mars and also who uh, kill ourselves by our own hand. I mean, we're the, we're the ones who do that. And why? But, um, yeah, that, that bottom uh, was hard to visit. I have been talking, People talk about it and ask me about it, but I've only visited it willingly uh, 
once and that was in the ted talk and uh, you know minutes before i'm nose to nose of my wife saying i can't do it i cannot do it and it, it wasn't that i couldn't do the performance it's that as i uh, just didn't see how i could open my door that door to hell on purpose mm-hmm. and the scream which is probably what you're talking about uh, you know happened when i was almost killed in a machine in an aluminum factory at the bottom of my panic disorder struggles and in that TED talk and it'll never happen again. I didn't practice it. I didn't rehearse it and I will never again do it, you know, right. but I did want to put out there this visceral thing of what bottom looks like. And I get notes from people around the world who say, sure. you know, I've had that scream come out of my mouth or something like it. A lot of people know about hitting bottom and it's a great ally if you're lucky and I was just so lucky, so blessed that I developed a panic disorder in the first place. I would have been a train wreck without it. And that I found a way in, in my struggles to find a way out. What's the big before and after? What what was, I mean, you talk about in a liberated mind, all the different types of techniques and strategies that you were employing to try to make sense of the anxiety and the panic. Try to give people a sense, like what is what was the big revelation before? Well, it's what after. came out of my mouth, you know, after that scream. The scream was not the transformational moment. That was bottom. That was there's no way out. You know, really, no, no being. You know, no fooling. There is no way out. And uh, so you've lost everything. You know, your career, your life trajectory, everything. And then sitting there, I don't know how long, but in this kind of odd, almost uh, fugue-like state. And then a door uh, opens. And I gave voice to the door that opens. I actually said out loud to no one that uh, we hours the morning. And I can remember the words word for word. I mean, it was pretty darn close to this. I don't know who you are, but apparently you can make me hurt. And you can make me suffer. But I'll tell you one thing you cannot do. You can't make me turn from my own experience. You can't do it. And who I was talking to was to the voice within, you know, the the uh, dictator within. I call it an liberated mind. And it's nothing fancy. It's It's the same thing that four-year-olds understand when you have goofy with horns on one shoulder and goofy with a halo on the other shoulder. I mean, four-year-olds can look at those cartoons and they get it because they've already been socialized enough inside a language community. We're the only species that do this, that you start splitting and dividing and arguing and pretending and lying and trying to be other than a whole human being because you're trying to figure out how to get the cacophony all to one particular mode of mind, one set of feelings and happy, happy, joy, joy, flowers from morning to night. That's not a human life. And um, inside that agenda is this problem solving idea that what I'm going to do is take my problems and I'm going to solve them. Why wouldn't you? It's just massively useful in so many other areas, including all the ones that I did. You know, I was waving my hand at it earlier, you know, for problems we create, like how do we go to Mars? Uh, or how do I um, communicate with somebody who's on the other side of the nation right now, live and have things recorded? It's amazing stuff that we've been able to do with our problem-solving mind. And yet we can't do the least little thing 
with our problem-solving mind when it comes to something like uh, a past history that's painful, mm. with betrayal from your girlfriend, with a failure that was, uh, uh, you know, witnessed by others and is humiliating. I mean, you just walk through the things that happened in the normal human beings. How's the problem-solving mind going to fix that? The memory doesn't go away. You've been raped. That's with you the rest of your life. Mm. The rest of your life. What are you going to do about that? You know, and, and the meditative traditions have this little phrase. There's one of them that has you meditate on this phrase of, what will you do when nothing you do will do? And that's the human condition. Right. Because in the mode of mind that says, I'll be okay when, and then the list includes when I'm more confident, when I'm not so anxious, when I'm not depressed, when I don't have an addiction history, when I didn't uh, have that rape history, when I didn't have a parent who abused me, when I didn't, yeah, great. Make that happen, dude. <laughs> right. And that what's been journey created. is the human journey that we put on six steroids with really bad answers from the culture, hmm. aided and abetted by scientists who should know better. And are things getting better? No, they're getting worse. In every area you can look, if it has to do with human behavior linked to human emotion that can be mishandled in the ways that uh, I think most of the folks in your audience know about and that I visited that's right inside my own personal hell that thank goodness was there and beat me about the head and ears before I finally did something that wasn't just logical, reasonable, sensible, and pathological. What, what's on your top five list of things that are not working? Like what's not working out there that you see is kind of still permeating the, the well, let's figure culture. out and problem solve, but figure out and problem solve then leads to detract, diminish, uh, avoid, uh, uh, difficult emotions, then that leads to uh, eliminate difficult uh, thoughts and the, and the history of them. That leads to attend to your problems because you really have to solve them. That leads to, you know, put something on the outside that uh, will bring inclusion into the group, you know, so that people want to be around you, whether it's because you're great or, and grand or because you're so pathetic that they'll let you in uh, out of the cold. And then uh, put your life on hold because uh, you need to do those other things. So uh, what you really want that's deep inside, that isn't about applause or money or, you know, mama smiling, that isn't about wagging fingers or shame and blame, that, but it's about you and the person in the mirror. Put that on hold. You'll get to that later. And allow life and your life's moments, the behavior that you're engaging in to be driven by these other things. I just said six, not five. Those <laughs> right. are the six inflexibility processes that are inside the act work. And in, in each case, they reflect a deep human yearning that's not being met, it's being mismanaged. And if you keep doing what doesn't work, you're going to reap the fruits of it. And that's what we're living through inside our culture with not just the personal hells that people are in and the rising rates of suicide, anxiety, stress, depression, you know, with the opiate crisis, on and on it goes. What the hell is that? It's life mismanaged. Mm -hmm. And it's not just that. Then you look also look at, well, how are we handling climate change? How are we handling the immigration crisis? What do we do about diversity? What do we do about Black Lives Matter. How about 
uh, uh, inequities in our economic system. You start listening to the social problems we've got and the very same things that create train wrecks within are stopping us from coming together in community and rising to the challenge of things that eventually, if we don't handle it, will make the earth unlivable. I mean, either through wars and conflict and all the rest, you know, I mean, you just see the amount of difference between rich and poor, for example. Do you know that that only, not only hurts the poor in terms of their health outcomes, it hurts the rich. The more disparity of wealth, the poorer the health outcomes of rich people. Mm. Think about it. And it's because we are not wired to be able to walk through a day and see suffering constantly and look away. You try to do that, it'll eat you out from the inside. And I don't care if you're Bill Gates or who you are. So you're not going to solve it with uh, lots of money in your pocket. You've got to figure out a way to soften the human heart, open the human eyes, and get people connected to the kind of lives that produce human prosperity, both for the individuals who are doing it, but also for the communities we're part of. And that's what the ACT journey is about, these flexibility processes. Is that what a liberated mind is? You look at a liberated mind, the first time I saw the title of the book, I thought, oh, we're going to be talking about Satori and enlightenment. You know, that was my first instinct, <laughs> which, which I think, and I want to talk to you about that a bit later, because I think that spirit is imbued in your work, and clearly it's had an influence on your work as well. But for the sake of talking about it in the context of ACT or acceptance. Well, you know, liberation has to do with, with uh, knocking the fences down. You know, I think it's even in the deep etymology of some of the words involved. You know, you're kind of chain, you're, you're inside a fence. And uh, we, we create fences with our own minds. And then try to live inside the fences that are there. And, and, you know, when people are suffering, sometimes they're in a very small enclosed rooms with iron bars around them. But it's mentally created. And turns out the iron bars are, you know, something more like a hologram or, you know, or, or, you know a really cool image printed on rice paper. I mean, they're, they're actually not something that can contain the human spirit, but we allow them to. And we, you know, we give them names. We call them mental health problems and so forth, or just insecurities, or lack of confidence, or, or all the common varieties of it. So, what I mean by a liberated mind is not, oh, you're so great, or you're so grand. It's not something like that. It's just, can we get out of our own way? Can we figure out a way just to be more fully who we are? I mean, we are the creatures that can create and imagine worlds that have never been. The very tools that are putting us inside those cages, this analytical, judgmental, problem-solving mind, if you can find a way to empower it, can, can meet the human needs that we have and can empower us in community to step up to the social challenges that we've got. And, you know, this we're on a sick journey that says... Um, if you have struggles or something wrong with you, we'll give you a label and probably give you lots of different medications you can take and then live inside that box, limit your horizons. And uh, the numbers every year get worse. Well, there's an alternative to that, which is hack that human mind that's creating that cage and figure out a way to open up the, the doors, you know, the, get the keys to the doors the jail cell. And that's what I mean by a liberated mind. I mean, open the door, 
and walk into a world in which you get to be whole and free, which does not mean what you think it means. It doesn't mean that you no longer have anxiety, that you no longer have sadness, that you no longer have urges, that you no longer have a history that's painful. It doesn't mean anything like that. It means something more like uh, seeing a lighthouse in the distance and taking a step towards it. It's very simple. It's right here, right now. It's the people who are listening to me and they're saying, yeah, that apply, but it doesn't apply to me because, no, that exact thing that you just thought, that's exactly what I'm talking about. That's the jail cell. And there is a door here. It's not a way out. It's a way in. And uh, I know it sounds Pollyanna-ish, but I do want to say we're sitting on something like 5,000 studies. Yeah. There are 400 randomized trials of ACT. There's a about food, depending on how you do it, because it involves mindfulness values, things that are so huge that you almost can't count. But several thousand studies. It's not like we don't know. It's that we ha- we've the the cacophony hasn't allowed us to put what we know into human culture in a way that transforms people. And and that's starting to break down. We're making progress. And mm-hmm. uh, I'm very hopeful. And I'm on podcasts like this for that reason. <laughs> there's a there's an inherent paradox and struggle of using mind to go beyond mind. Yes, I mean this is part of the. Can you talk a bit about that paradox and the struggle of? Um, yeah, you know, you know like to, the meditators, the meditative tradition has always been really skeptical about that, and you can see why. This is not a matter of understanding. It's not a matter of figuring it out. You know, because that's the very part of you that needs to be reined in and put on a leash. Yeah, you want that when you're doing your taxes or fixing your car, but no, you do not want that if you're seeking peace of mind or purpose. It's just a train wreck because it's not going to give you that. It's going to give you the list of pros and cons. And next thing you know, you've disappeared into the chatter. Not And what does science do? Science produces rules. What kind of rules? Verbal rules. The exact things we're talking about. So, you know, our wisdom traditions get it and they have some cool techniques lots more that we need number one lots of them are hard to put into the modern world i mean 10 day silent retreats that's great but come on you're talking about the uh, young people or the educated elite nobody else can afford that you can't go into the factory floor and be talking about a freaking 10 day silent retreat are you kidding me and, you know, in the places where it emerged you gave alms to the people to do that you stuffed flags and cracks I mean, no, the West is trying to take the things the monks did and put it in there to, it's great, I'm, I'm, I'm applauding, it's great, great, good things. But can we do something that in 30 seconds can give you some orientation to how to move forward? Well, so what science can do is develop rules, and science can develop rules about things that can't be guided by rules. You can have rules of how to produce a good uh, hitter in baseball. And by the way, ACT is right inside Major League Ball right now. Root for the Toronto Blue Jays. It's all ACT all the time from their performance coaches. And uh, they're chasing the Yankees right now. They have a four-game set coming up. So go Blue Jays. We'll see what they're made of. (laughs) And all that work has taken them to. But uh, no, but my point being, you know, yes, Art is not science, but you can have a science of art. Yes, sex is not science, but science can tell you something about sexuality. Relationships are not science, but science can tell you. Peace of mind is not science, but science can tell you. So 
what you need is a kind of non-arrogant science mm. that understands the limitations of rules and can give you rules about areas of life that can't themselves be guided simply by rules. For example, you can have rules like don't use any rules here. You can do that. Well, then how are you going to learn it? Well, use my example of baseball coaching. A good baseball coach knows how to arrange exercises such that you learn to hit the ball. You start talking about the parabolic function of a ball hit, hit well, and I guarantee you your batting average has gone down. You're going to hit fewer home runs, even though that's, that parabolic function is mathematically precise and can tell you exactly if you can accommodate spin and air. You know, there's this science of how balls work and why, you know, people can throw curveballs and all that. Yeah. But you don't want the pitcher thinking that. You don't want the home run hitter thinking that. That's okay. We can come up with a science-based way of talking about things that cannot be done through rules. And that is, uh, they end up looking weird. For example, inside the ACT work, we have a whole area we call diffusion. And what they are, are rules about how to mess around with language to undermine the literal meaning of language. So I'll give you an example. Um, Let's say you're having a thought like I'm bad. You could say, okay, I want you to think that thought, but at the end when you have the last word, I want you also to spell it out loud backwards. Okay. I'm really bad. And bad spelled backwards is dab. Why the hell would you do that? Well, I'll tell you why. I can show you the data on it. It's one of about 250, 300 methods we've developed inside our science journey that diminish the impact of I'm bad. By the way, you might have come by that honestly. You might have had your mother telling you, I'm so sick of you. You've ruined my life. You'll never be any good. You're just inherently bad. I mean, there are people trying to live lives with, with echoes of parents who said things like that to them. And there's no delete button in the nervous system. You don't subtract that ever. You'll go to your grave remembering it. Yeah, but if you try to do it as a problem solving, you try to figure out, oh, no, I'm not bad. I'm good. And then a little voice, the others, you know, goofy on the other shoulder says, you're lying to yourself. You're not really good. Look, you did this and you did this. You remember that? You liar. You cheat. You fraud. Next you know, don't, I mean, everybody listening to me knows this. They've all been through it. Talk yourself into self-confidence. Talk yourself. It, it's bull. It's not going to happen. But, you know, hey, I'm bad. And bad backwards is damn. I mean, it's, I'll give you a couple others. Sing it. I'm bad. I'm really, really bad. I'm really, really, really bad. I mean, sing it to the tune of Happy Birthday. Say it out loud in the voice of Donald Duck. <laughs> it sounds crazy. Say the word bad over and over again, at least once per second for 30 seconds. Mm. Bad, 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 bad. Give your mind a name. Thank you, George, for telling me I'm bad. Any, got any information, any other information for me? 
you suck. Oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> it sounds, I mean, it has a vibe of a, I mean, it has a, like a koan type vibe, this, this breaking yeah. with the, the, the hold, the, the finality of the language and, and, um, the meaning that we ascribe to it. Right. Well, koans are awesome because what they do is they take the structure of language, they play the game of language, and then they loop back and implode it. They blow it up. You know, what is the sound of one hand clapping? I mean, you, they just blow it up. But, you know, each word seems to make sense, and then it loops back. And you're just, your mouth opens and you're like, you know, what are you going to say that's going to keep you from getting hit with, by, with a stick? <laughs> you know, <laughs> as you visit your, uh, your Zen master. Right. I mean, yeah, and what is the Zen master going to read? If the Zen master is going to read, did, did you break out of the network? Because if you learned the right answer, oh, uh, I know the answer. It's... <sighs> and you blow in the Zen master's face and they get what you're doing, they're going to hit you with a stick because it doesn't matter what your freaking answer is, dude. The issue is, can you climb outside the network? Is there more to you than the push, pull, click, click of mental relations? And that new kid on the block of symbolic language it's only a couple hundred thousand or a couple million. We know that the language trained chimps don't do it. What your baby does, and this is part of what's cool about ACT, student for the rant, but underneath ACT is a vast literature on cognition and a theory that organizes called relational frame theory that can do things like raise your IQ over eight, nine, ten points in the areas that everybody says you can't raise IQ. There's a new randomized trial coming out in the journal Intelligence. There's the fifth randomized trial showing that finally the mainstream is allowing freaking things to be published. We published it in little minor behavioral journals because nobody believed it. But we did enough hack of the human mind that I can show you how to do things like be even smarter and coming up with problem-solving rules. Yeah, but great. Here's what you then will have to do. You have to see an act therapist as to how to figure out a way to sort of blow at your own mind, if you know what I'm, what I'm saying there, of yeah. using rules to go back and, and, and blow up rules. So we've been on a journey for a long time, and the wisdom traditions have been on it. You know, silence. Why silence? Uh, chanting. Why chant? Why repeated prayer? Why koans? They all screw around with analytic, judgmental, problem-solving language. Why? Because that's the cage. Right. Right. So your science can help. Not just science showing, hey, meditating it helps. And that's taking the tradition, the, the solutions great as they are that have come out of human creativity over several thousand years of how to, you know, deal with this uh, tiger that we learn how to ride once we learn symbolic language. But no. Uh, you know, the, the back to the chimpanzees, they don't do what your baby does. I, I can actually walk you through the, what is the smoking gun of language that leads to being able to do things like I mentioned with IQ and stuff. But uh, we have in human culture figured out ways around it. But now that we know what the processes are and why it's hard, you know, I, in my self-help books, like Get Out of Your Mind, you mentioned, I, I teach people how to do their own 
diffusion exercises, and they send me things from around the world. I, I just read one the other day. A runner hits a wall and is thinking, I can't, I can't, I can't. And then so here was her solution. I see, I A, I N, I T, I see, I A, and and runs through the wall. Right. Because I can't versus I C A N T is two totally different deals. And that's her idea. It's not my idea. It's not in any act book anywhere, but it's going to be because I'm going to steal it. (laughs) (laughs) With some credit. (laughs) I hope I I remember her name. I'll give her credit. It's, yeah. So the, a lot of our lives are patterned, right? So we're stuck off in living out the rules that you talk about. And, and to your point, the, the brain is, if you want to go to Mars, the brain's very useful. serves a lot of function from a problem-solving perspective. How do you coexist in both of these worlds? I mean, on the one hand, you're living with a brain that's embedded in thought and problem-solving, and it can be useful at some yeah. times, and then it's very terrible at solving it. Yeah, this, this persistent- and, well, and you talk about this in terms of brain processing because, of course, all these psychological and behavioral processes show up in the brain. You know, without a brain, you wouldn't do it, and everything you do is kind of... That's part of the meat that makes it happen again, right? So it's there. It's not that the brain made you do it. I mean, you're doing it also influence the brain. It's a double-headed arrow. It's a, it's a dependent and independent variable. But now that we know some more about the brain, we can do things like, well, what happens when you, for example, adopt a narrative self? You start telling yourself how great and grand you are, or how pathetic and low you are. I think in the service of being part of the group, I think it's how you're trying to earn belonging instead of simply allowing your birthright of belonging as the kind of social primate that you are and the conscious being that you are to bring you into the group that way. Well, you know, I can show you the studies on uh, psychedelic therapy and ACT, which is a big combination. ACT is probably becoming the most dominant structure in which people are doing psychedelic therapy. Where you look at what happens with the narrative self And these midbrain structures that get harnessed by this evolutionary recent process of telling the story about who you are and comparing yourselves to others. And what does it do? It grabs gatekeeper functions in the brain and it literally filters out sensory motor information that conflict with the story. If you're living inside, I'm bad. Here's how bad that is. You don't know what the hell is going on in your own body, in your own life, in your own environment. You literally will filter out sensory and motor information that doesn't fit the story. It doesn't make it to the parts of your brain that allow you to consider the alternatives. It's filtered out. It's gone. Well, and and the reason I'm mentioning it with psychedelic therapy is that you can show that, you know, with some chemical help, Please, let's not redo the 60s and 70s. Been there, saw that, train wreck. But do learn from what's inside, after all, every indigenous culture, using chemicals to do what? To blow your mind. Why? Because your mind is, <laughs> that part of you is great for, you know, solving problems like, you know, how to have enough to eat, but it's horrible with regard to peace of mind and purpose. So this narrative self, you know, uh, I, we're seeing in the neurobiological studies of ACT and the meditators and the psychedelics this kind of stuff is that they're operating 
on the overstructuring of neurobiological processes by judgmental language. Mm -hmm. And so the answer to your question is, if you're going to live in this world where we have ancient systems that are a thousand times older than these verbal evaluative systems, we better figure out a way to put them on a leash, the verbal evaluative ones, enough that we can build out parts of our brain, but another way to say it, parts of our life that will then get in the uh, the brain, it's a double-headed arrow, that will allow us to more fully contact the environments we're in and the opportunities that we have for creativity, love, contribution, connection, for the things that we most yearn for and want. So the answer to your question is we need to learn to put the mind on a leash. We have to take it out of the driver's seat, put ourselves in that driver's seat. This is our car, thank you very much. You're welcome to come along for the ride. I want you when you're helpful and I'll listen to you even when you're not. But frankly, no, you don't get the freaking keys to the car. Because you're just too dumb to do it. You're too dumb, no matter how smart and brilliant you are. If you look at my TED Talks, you mentioned it. I gave a TED Talk to the Davidson Foundation, which has a school for children who have IQs in the 99.9th percentile or above. And I know from involvement with Davidson Academy, which is here on the UNR campus and is funded by a gazillionaire, people come from around the world to be trained at Mm. that school, that their mental health problems are no lower. In fact, they're higher than folks who don't have that level of intelligence. So we can't just think our way out of it. Mm -hmm. We have to use science and our deeper cultural and clinical traditions to guide us towards how to use practices that rein in the excesses of the problem-solving mind and allow us to build a broader, more flexible repertoire so that we can feel, attend, remember, care, and do in ways that serve a life worth living. Talk about where values fit into that paradigm. Like, why was, why was the values component so integral to the act um, well, it, 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 it's, it's integral, it's central, it's one of the most important, and it's so dangerous, and you can see why. You know, because values evaluate, hmm, things that make you go, hmm, the same freaking route, two totally different agendas. And the kind of values I'm talking about you can you can you need a scientific kind of precision about what it is, but then to actually get it into the human heart, uh, that science, science side has to be turned into a clinical language or a practical language, a self-help language that allows you to find it becomes much more metaphorical. Mm-hmm. You know, so that if, if I wanted to have a values conversation, it might be something more like. Values are like a direction, not a destination. A destination, you can get there and be there. A direction, you go and you can keep going. No matter how far west you go, there's more west to go. From where I'm sitting, I can get to San Francisco by going west in about 200 miles. But once I'm there, I'm there. And what's the next step? I don't know. I'm there, there, right? Those are goals. Those aren't values. Values are not external. They're not applause. They're not money, et cetera. They're internal. They're intrinsic. 
How do you know that? Well, just like following a direction. If you face west, you're now headed west. You take a step west, you're headed west. Are you west? Are you headed west? When do you get there? You never get there. You're going in that direction. Okay. Just take that little bit of language I just did. Some people listening to what I just said might get a little feel for, oh, I get it. There actually is something in my experience that's kind of like that. Like a compass is like that, right? And a compass, even when you're following a complicated thing, you hit a big rock, you hit a big swamp, you have to go in a different direction. You know that eventually, if you want to go in that direction, you have to turn back in the other direction. Things happen in life. You can't always move directly towards, for example, loving contributions. You've been just been dumped by the people who love you, or you're put in jail. You're, you know, you're Mandela living, and the only people you have to talk to is the jailer. I mean, you can be in extraordinary circumstances where you don't get to show the importance of heading west, quote unquote, of the directions in your life. Yeah, but if you know how to connect to that, and you do. In your life, you understand this idea of a direction. Maybe I can help you get down to what are the directions, the intrinsic qualities that you want to reflect in your life. And there's some good techniques. Take your pain, flip it over, you'll find it. Take your sweet moments, dive into them, you'll find it. Look at your guides and heroes, the people you look up to. They're doing things that you want to put into your behavior. Think about your life as a story you're writing. And if you really had the authorship and you could determine the theme but not the content, what's the theme of the next chapter? Those, I've just given you four ways that will help you find what your compass is already telling you in a way you already know it. And when you find it, you go like, well, duh. I mean, when you... Can, God, if I can I use an example? Okay, so I've been my, through my second divorce. I decided I'm not doing anything for a year. You know, I'm not doing dating really. I'm just not, you know, because I, I don't, I've learned not to trust that. I mishandled my first divorce. I'm immediately dating. Plus, I'm still take, trying to take care of my ex-wife. I mean, it's just, that was a train wreck. So I give myself a year off. Then I'm brushing my teeth. I'm looking at the person in the mirror. And these words come into my head. I want love in my life. Love is of importance to me. And it wasn't just like, oh, I want a girlfriend. No, it was something more like behaving lovingly is of importance. And in many ways, I get to do that responding to emails when people write me and say that they're suffering or etc. I get to do that all the time. But, you know, an intimate relationship is different. And, uh, well, here's my point. That value shows up. Mm -hmm. It's not a thing. It's not a marriage certificate. It's not a photograph. It's not a thing you can put in a box. It's a quality. It's an adverb, lovingly, or an adjective. You can't turn it into an adjective or, ad or an adverb, be suspicious. Any value that sounds like a noun, no, wrong. The science of it says, well, you know, when that, land, when that shows up in my head, it's like, well, duh. It's like, 
yes, of course. And what did it feel like? It felt like uh, tears were coming to my eyes. That's how it felt. Mm. I'm Is, tearing I, up I, even remembering it right I, now. I can imagine that one of the struggles around value creation is is similarly the interference of of the language right so the the yeah. hooks the things that are hooked into um you know what it means to be um in love or a loving person and all the the nettings that trap the that experience um living inside the network we have this big cognitive network and all the expectations and the evaluations and the stories and so you know drill this thing down to the qualities of being and doing that you want to reflect in your life mm-hmm. and a lot of those are beyond words uh, how do you then know what your values are well you, you know it by things like a felt sense it feels like waking up, like your eyes opening, like your pulse quickening. It feels like vulnerability. It feels like sweet, sad. It feels like uh, watching a baby being born and feeling tears and smiles at the same time or, or watching a wedding happening. I'm feeling that it, there, there is a felt sense to it. And you want the channels open to the whole of you that grounds your life in what your body's doing, what your mind is doing, what your emotions are doing, what your attention is doing. So values are not a simple thing. It's not like, what do you want? Yeah, well, want means missing. I mean, the etymology of want, we still use it for want of food, he died. Vaunt, the way it was originally, vaunt milk, missing milk, Uh, you know, that's not wants or not values. Uh, so the whole values conversation is messed up in the culture. Mm. And we've got lots and lots of folks out there trying to live a life in which values are money. There's actually a person in the university I'm in who tells students, Here, you can measure your success, how much money do you make? You know, if I could be in the room and walk up and slap the person really hard and get away with it, I'd do it. What are you putting that poison in young people's minds for? Mm-hmm. It's bullshit. When you clue the data, if you're using money to self-soothe and avoid, what does it predict? Human misery, suicidality. There's billionaires blowing their brains out every freaking day. Don't be putting that poison into young people's heads. Yeah. But it's because I actually happen to know this person. No, the person's got a wounded heart, and and the sickness is there, and it's reflecting it, you know. Yeah. And so when we see it on television screens and our political leaders and some of our sports figures and folks like that who are saying things that are poisonous, and eventually it shows up, and oh yeah, it's no wonder that person died of a drug overdose or. So wisdom is uh, needed, and science can help you with wisdom, but only if you really do a deep dive. Mm. And so one of the things we've brought to the psychotherapy literature, if you had to pick one thing, uh, when I say we, I mean that community, Mm -hmm. diffusion would be one thing kind of technique-y, you know, bad spells backwards, (laughs) damn, that's just so silly to think of it. Uh, even though the science is pretty good, you do the, the, the studies on them, but values is the other one. 
And I do worry about what's happened, for example, with the mindfulness traditions. Mm. There's no mindfulness tradition that doesn't include values, right action. Well, there now is in the health system. So we're now dealing with selfish mindfulness. Yeah. You take care of the kids. I got to go meditate. Yeah. <gasps> new new, con- new nettings, new constructs that, that just tie people up in new knots. Yeah. 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 You can self-soothe. You, you can relax with meditation. <laughs> you know, you can, oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, you're, you know what's going to happen when you meditate? You're going to walk through the grocery store and want to cry when you see people who don't have enough money to buy food. Mm-hmm. What do you think is going to happen? It's not happy, happy, joy, joy. It's not rem and stimpy. Or, it's not a smiley face button. And any teacher would tell you that. Any meditation teacher will tell you that. But man, even that, we may screw up enough that in the West we forget what it's even for. Yeah. We run everything through those kind of cultural norms that exist in the West. You know, meditation is about this. It's about that. It's about, you know, constant joy. It's about, you know, the, the cessation of stress. It's it's fulfilling a promise built around, yeah, the, the ugly blending of one construct with something that's really supposed to shift just how you relate to constructs. Um, I feel you. Yeah. Yeah, and I think we're starting to see some wising up in the sense that, you know, some folks have, I mean, a lot of folks have, have, have contemplative practices helped wake them up, even in the distorted way we put it into the West. And certainly in our wisdom traditions and our spiritual traditions, absolutely, of course, yes. And um, so I, it's a net positive. Yeah. And it's a move in the right direction. Yes. But let's take the next step now. And bring that with us, but let's not be, uh, you know, what is the, uh, the, the uh, koan not be uh, fail to see because of the flowers before our eyes. I, uh, I'm grateful for your candor. um, Using your own life as a, (laughs) <laughs> kind of a test tube for, you know, and the openness that you, you share and the vulnerability that you share to make it okay for people to look at themselves differently. I think that's just a, it's a, it's a, a massive gift that you bring through your practice that the world of science needs more of yeah. that more self-effacing science. Yeah. So thank you for that. And thank you for making the time to share with our audience more about act and, more about your work for those who are new to huddle huddle is a place to meet amazing people who are sharing wisdom and finding support and becoming the best versions of themselves. This has been the huddle.com lifecast. I want to thank you for tuning in and thank you for turning on to your lives.